Now we're looking at chapter 14 of Mark's gospel and we're beginning to read at verse 1. After two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him, that is Jesus, by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Let us all pray. And as all of our heads are bowed, I would ask you to come to the Lord now in prayer. And whatever your need is, that you might ask him to meet your need. If you're here tonight and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus, I mean by that that you're not born again, you're not converted, that you would even open your heart to the Lord. What have you got to lose? Open your heart to the Lord and say, Lord, if you have anything to say to me, speak to me now. And I believe he'll answer that prayer. I really do. But there are many believers and they haven't heard the voice of God for a long time. Maybe they haven't been able to hear it. Well, why not bring yourself, before we even preach tonight, why not bring yourself initially to that point of saying, Lord, I, I just want now to be ready to hear from you. Father, we thank you for the wonder of the Lord Jesus. He truly is wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And we are lost in wonder, love, and praise when we gaze upon him. And Lord, we know that it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to come and to testify, to take of the things of Christ and show them to us. And Lord, I pray now that the Holy Spirit of God, who has been given to his church, that Lord, he will come and he will minister Christ to every heart. Lord, we would see Jesus. We, we, we thank you for your word but beyond the sacred page, we seek Thee, Lord. Our spirits pant for Thee, the living Word. We don't want to go away, Lord, knowing a little bit more about You. We want to go away knowing You more, personally and intimately. And I bring before You tonight the needs of this congregation, 
You know them, Lord, I don't. But we pray that the Spirit who is the Lord, who searches the hearts, will uncover the secret things and minister to every soul gathered here tonight. Lord, there are needy people. There are unbelieving people. There are hard-hearted people, perhaps. There are discouraged people. Lord, we bring these needs to you. And we pray that in the name of the Lord Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you will meet every need in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If this is your first occasion with us, I started last week here in Ars Evangelical last Sunday morning, uh, a series which I've really entitled Final Countdown to Calvary. And what we're looking at is the final week in the life and ministry of Jesus. And we've covered some ground already. Uh, last Sunday morning, we looked at the Sunday of that week, which was Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus into Jerusalem. As the King of the Jews, he presents himself to them in fulfillment of prophecy. Then we saw that on Monday, the next day, in Jesus' week, he cursed a fig tree, which was significant because it spoke of the nation of Israel who were God's chosen vessel to bear fruit and to witness to the world. And he cursed this tree, signifying because it had no fruit that it was taking up room but wasn't uh, serving any purpose, just like the nation at that particular time. Then he went into the temple that same day Monday and he cleansed the temple of uh, those who were buying and selling and using what should have been a house of prayer unto God as a den, a hiding place for thieves and robbers. Then on Tuesday, we saw last Sunday night that on the Tuesday of the final week of Jesus, he was questioned by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious council uh, in the precincts of the temple. And this morning we saw it's probably about Wednesday in the week. We can't be too dogmatic about it. But he gives what we know as the Olivet Discourse, and we read that in chapter 13 and studied it in some detail. Now, verse 1 and 2 Speaking of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover, and the chief priests and scribes seeking how they might take Jesus by trickery and put him to death, this is probably still Wednesday of the week. By the time we get down to verse 10 and 11, where Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, goes to the chief priests to betray Jesus, it is most likely uh, the early hours of Thursday morning. So we're following the Lord Jesus along uh, this week. Now, there's a bit of a discussion about verses 3 to 9, this anointing of the head and feet of Jesus by Mary of Bethany. There's a bit of discussion about when this actually took place. And although it's placed here by Mark and um, other gospel writers, uh, uh, Matthew, um, at this juncture, we know from John, in John chapter 12 and verse 1, in his account, of this incident, he says this took place six days before Passover. So we're going out of chronological sequence a little in Mark's gospel. And so this is more than likely Saturday night, the night before Sunday, the Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. So we're going back in time a little. Now you might ask, well, why does Matthew and Mark uh, place it here? Well, probably for thematic reasons. It says here, of course, in verse 8, that Jesus confesses that Mary has anointed him beforehand, uh, anointed his body specifically for his burial. And it certainly fits in with this gospel of the cross of Mark's. 
But I think there's more to it than that. What Mark, and I believe the Holy Spirit behind Mark, wants to do is contrast Mary's devotion with Judas' betrayal. That's why, why it's here. He wants to contrast what I've called a miserable betrayer, Judas, with an extravagant worshiper, Mary of Bethany. So let's look at both these characters in order. Now we see Judas solves the problem of the chief priests and scribes in verse 1 and verse 2. They want to kill the Lord Jesus, but they don't want to do it during this religious feast and festival of Passover and unleavened bread. Verse 2 gives the reason, lest there be an uproar of the people. See, the Lord Jesus was popular among the common people. And there were so many Jewish people, as we saw last week, coming into the holy city during Passover time, that it was a tinderbox for trouble. And they didn't want in any way to court some kind of unrest. But we see that Judas solves their problem because verse 10 and 11, uh, he agrees to secretly hand Jesus over to the authorities. He goes to the chief priests, and when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Now let's look at Judas. I want you to understand something. To betray someone is not the same as being their enemy. Now think about that for a moment. To betray someone is not the same as being their enemy. You see, the essence of betrayal, even to death, is that you have to show affection towards the one that you're betraying. Betrayal comes from the hand of a friend. If you like, a betrayer is one who embraces you with one arm and stabs you in the back with the other. And here we have Judas, the greatest betrayer of all time, who was the friend to the greatest man of all time. Now please note this because it's vital. And it may well be even essential to your eternal well-being that you realize that the betrayer of Christ professed to be one of his greatest friends. He was one of the twelve disciples that followed Jesus for three and a half years of his ministry. And incidentally, the greatest betrayers of Christ today are still those who profess to be his friends. You see, you can be affectionate towards Jesus, but ultimately be betraying him. I wonder, is that anyone here tonight? Let me be more specific. Perhaps you would call yourself, in inverted commas, a Christian. Perhaps you go to a Christian place of worship. Your religious creed is one that belongs to Christendom. You pray, perhaps, to Jesus. Perhaps you have been baptized as an infant in the name of Jesus. Perhaps you've done things in his name. But that does not make you a Christian. And even if you are affectionate toward him, and I would vouch to say that though the whole world is not Christian, most people have some kind of a reverence for the character and person of Jesus. Most people do. But just because you have an affection towards him does not 
mean that you belong to him, and you could even ultimately be betraying him, even though you feel you feel predisposed toward him. Now that's frightening. Because it was someone exactly like this who betrayed the Lord Jesus to death for the price of a slave. Now I want you to consider tonight, before we look at Mary, looking at this miserable betrayer. And first, to see the privileges that this man had. One of the great privileges he enjoyed was he heard Christ's words. Now please, think about this for a moment. Judas was there on the mount when Jesus gave his famous sermon. We read it in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And the Beatitudes, Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. He heard Jesus say the first time, Do unto others as you would have them do unto yourself. The golden rule, as they call it. Judas heard the first time, Turn the other cheek. Love them that hate you and despitefully use you. Judas was there when the Lord Jesus Christ taught the parable of the Good Samaritan. The whole world knows about it, but he was there when he first taught it. He was there when he told the greatest story in the English language it has been called by Charles Dickens. We know better than him that it's the greatest story because we've experienced it in our lives. The story of the prodigal son. Judas was there when it was first told. Judas was there when Jesus said to his questioning disciples, Pray therefore in this manner, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And you know the rest. Judas was there the first time that was ever recited. He sat on the edge of the crowd when Jesus taught the multitudes, and he also was in the private teaching school in the waysides at the twilight hours when the disciples were being instructed in the deeper things and mysteries of God's kingdom. He was there, and yet he never truly believed. That's staggering. He knew Christ intimately, but he did not know Christ by faith. He knew Christ personally, but he did not know Christ savingly. And that can happen. And I'm telling you, it's happening this very day, the Lord's Day, right across Ulster, right across the United Kingdom. And I know church attendances are depleting. Nevertheless, there are people who have been in Christian places of worship today. And they know Christ in a sense. They have an affection towards Christ But though they know him in some personal way, who he is, what he did, and they appreciate it, they do not know him savingly. They do not know him by faith. They've never repented of their sins, had a conversion experience, and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Have you? Now, this is vital. Not only did he hear the words of Christ, he saw the miracles of Christ. This is remarkable. He was there when Jesus fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. He was there when he fed the 4,000 as well. He was on the boat when the storm arose. When Jesus stood and said, be muzzled, and the storm was stead. He was there and he saw it. I could go on and on and on. He saw great miracles. People who were blind given their eyesight. People who were uh, lame given... Uh, ability to, to move and to walk and to leap. People who had withered off trophied arms. 
he saw them grow and be, take on muscle and be restored before his very eyes. He saw Jesus walk on water and raise dead people. This is the man that saw Christ's miracles, yet he never experienced the greatest miracle of all in his heart. He was never born again. Now, I believe there are people, and they've seen miracles, even experienced miracles in their own life, and maybe you're one of them. Sometimes when our backs are against the wall, even the atheists among us pray and ask God's help. And sometimes God comes through. And I know there's a question mark and you think, was that God or was that chance or what was it? But you've been there and maybe you've seen something that is indisputable happening in your life in answer to, to coming in prayer to God. And you've maybe experienced a miracle or know someone who has and, and it's irrefutable. And yet you yourself have never allowed God to birth the miracle of salvation in your own heart. He saw Christ's miracles as well as hearing Christ's teaching. Something else. He saw Christ save other people. Judas was there when Jesus took a detour to Samaria to meet one woman at a well at 12 noon, the hottest point of the day. And they were all bamboozled about why Jesus was going this route that no one ever went and why he spoke to this woman, which wasn't a done thing in the middle of the day, and especially a Samaritan woman, for the Jews have no dealings with a Samaritan. And he saw the barriers that Jesus went over in order to reach one woman who was an immoral woman who was married five times and was living with a guy. And Judas saw this woman converted at a well, having been given living water by Jesus so that she would never thirst again. And Judas saw her go into her hometown in Samaria. And Judas heard about how the whole town had been converted to Jesus. He saw them all converted, and yet he was never saved. It's remarkable. He saw the wee man Zacchaeus come down from his tree. And Jesus said, salvation must come to your house today. And he went to the house along with the rest of them. And he heard the repentance confessing from the mouth of Zacchaeus when he said, I will repay fourfold all that I have stolen and half my goods I'll give to the poor. He saw it. Yet he never repented. He was there on the hills of Gadara among the tombs where there was a demoniac possessed with a legion of devils which could be anything over than a, a thousand devils. He saw this madman running around naked, wailing and cutting himself. He was possessed. And then he fell at the feet of Jesus and Jesus delivered him and sent the demons into swine and the swine went headlong into the water. And here was this madman that no one could tame sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And yet Judas remained unchanged. I wonder, have you seen people's lives changed by Jesus? But he hasn't changed you yet. Because you won't let him. He was a very privileged man, wasn't he? Hearing the teaching of Christ, seeing the miracles of Christ, seeing Christ save other people, but something else. And this is the most terrifying of all to me. He did the work of Christ. Yes, he did. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, we read that he was sent out by Jesus to spread the word. 
of the gospel of the kingdom. And the Lord divided 70 of his disciples into twos. And they went out preaching the kingdom. And when they returned, you know what they said? You can read it yourself. They said, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, do you know what that means? Judas was casting out devils in Jesus' name. Judas was doing mighty works. We might call them miracles in the name of Jesus. Yet Judas rejected God's work in his own heart. He was engaged in a work in Christ's name and a work of Christ had never been done in his heart. How many ministers have been in pulpits of our land this day? Believing they are doing the work of Christ. And the work of grace has never been done in their hearts. How many Sunday school teachers have gathered a little brood of children around them, teaching them the Bible, doing the work of God, I think. We could go on and on, couldn't we? You can be a member in this church and not be saved. You can be, you know. Now I want you to look into your heart and ask yourself, are you truly born again? I'm not asking you, do you tick the little box of assent to he was born of the virgin, he was the son of God, he died under Pontius Pilate and was buried and rose again the third day and is ascended to heaven and is coming. And I'm not asking, do you intellectually assent to those things? I'm asking you, have you had the supernatural miracle of the new birth in your heart? John Wesley went in 1735 as a missionary to Georgia, a colony in the United States. And after two years of work as a missionary among them, he said, I went out to convert the Indians, but, O oh God, who shall convert me? He went out to convert the Indians, and he wasn't saved himself. And he knew it. Do you know it? Do you know there is an evangelical problem, a serious problem, and that is false profession. People who have been told they're saved, they maybe believe they're saved, and they are not saved. And there's general agreement right across denominational divides and theological uh, dispositions that this is a serious problem. Let me give you examples. Bill Bright of Campus Crusade for Christ says, Many who call themselves Christians are not really biblical Christians at all. Although they may be religious people who attend church regularly, they have never experienced the new birth and a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Dr. Rod Bell, the president of the Fundamentalist Baptist Fellowship of America, believes that 50% of people that go to church are lost. The evangelist Louis Pelot has said that of 80% of Americans who claim to be Christians, few live any differently from pagans or atheists as though God has no claim on their lives. Dr. James Dobson's, Dobson of Care for the Family admitted, the majority of Americans are dabbling in religious expression that is no substance. A.W. Tozer said, probably less than one out of ten evangelicals knows anything experientially about the new birth. Are you born again? I'm not asking you, did you utter some prayer like abracadabra that meant nothing to you and probably meant nothing to God? I'm asking you, have you got the assurance in your heart given by the Spirit of God that you're a son or a daughter of God? Are you born again? And do you know that you're born again? Now, 
I know that Judas was ordained to this role, and I'm not going to get into this big debate tonight. God was sovereign in the way, and this was prophesied, but one thing I am sure of, I believe in no form of God's sovereignty that nullifies man's responsibility. Let me repeat that. I believe in no view of God's sovereignty that nullifies man's responsibility. What I mean by that is, Judas was guilty. And Judas was complicit in the betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was responsible. He made choices in his life. And I don't believe for one moment that he woke up one day and he decided, I'm going to betray Jesus Christ. I believe that it happened in a process of decline. An inward decline in his life. And added to that, he was acquiring a taste for a secret sin. Do you know what that was? Covetousness. We know this from the Scriptures. He was given the job right at the beginning of being the treasurer of the twelve. He was in charge of the kitty. And we read from the start that he had his hand in the bag. From the beginning, he was a thief. And that's why he objects. Now, it doesn't say specifically Judas. It says some among them objected to this very expensive ointment being uh, broken and poured out upon Jesus. They're saying this could have been sold and the money given to the poor. But we know from the other gospel writers that Judas was the ringleader of this objection. And he wasn't worried about the poor. He was worried about the money. He had his hand in the bag and that was money he could have had. But what I want you to see tonight, it was his secret sin that caused him to eventually betray the Lord. Many people are not saved because they cannot, are not willing to let go of their secret sin. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. You cannot overcome sin without the power of God. And repentance is not cleaning yourself up and then coming to Jesus. No. Repentance is a change of mind about your sin, which means you understand the damage it's doing to you and you're willing to be changed by the power of God. But one thing is certain. You cannot put one hand out to God and hold tightly your sin with the other hand. Maybe some of you have been trying to do that. Eventually, your secret sin will cause you to betray the Lord. Believers, that applies to you as well. If you're dabbling in secret sin, it eventually will completely cut you off from God. I'm not saying you'll be lost forever. All I'm saying is you will be at a point of almost no return if you don't cease and repent. What is your secret sin? J.C. Ryle, the Bishop of Liverpool, said many years ago, open sin has killed its thousands, but secret sin its tens of thousands. And hence we read in verse 11, when they heard it, that he was willing to betray Jesus for money, they were glad and promised to give him money, so he sought how he might conveniently betray him. How are you conveniently betraying him? It's convenient for you because of your sin. But let me ask you a question. What is the memory that we have of Judas? Well, his name has become synonymous with betrayal. The miserable betrayer. 
Now, in contrast to Judas, the Holy Spirit comes and reveals a woman whose name we have come to know is synonymous with devotion and worship. Now, she's unnamed here, but in John chapter 12, we read that it was Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead. It's very, very instructive to note that three times in the gospel records we find Mary of Bethany at the feet of Jesus. That is beautiful. First of all, when Martha, her sister, is cumbered about with much serving in the kitchen, Jesus is at, uh, Mary is at the school of Christ at the Savior's feet, learning from him. And then we find that when her brother dies, Lazarus, and Jesus delays in coming, that he might raise him from the dead to glorify God. She falls at his feet and pleads for the life of her brother. And there she is at his feet again. And here we see her again at Jesus' feet, this time anointing his feet with this very expensive ointment. Now, this account should not be confused with Luke chapter 7, and it often is. In Luke chapter 7, we read of a sinner woman who anointed the feet of Jesus in Simon the Pharisee's house. But this is not Simon the Pharisee's house. This is Simon the leper's house. And here Mary, as John 12 testifies, Mary anoints both the head and the feet of Jesus. And we see the reason why, verse 8, Jesus says, She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Now, this is sweet. When you read the gospel record and come to the end after Jesus has been crucified and buried, we find that other women came to the tomb and we read the reason why they came was to anoint the body of Jesus after his burial. But here was a woman so devoted to Christ whose spirit was so surrendered and in touch with the Spirit of God that she knew when the Disciples did not understand. And remember I showed you last week how time and time again in Mark's gospel, he tried to show them that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinners and be crucified and be buried. Remember? And they just did not see it. They couldn't get it. And yet here was a woman. And can I say to you women, often the women got it before the men did. And that's the same today, I believe. It is. She saw that he was going to die. She didn't wait to after he was buried to anoint him. She did it before. Now you say, well, why did she do it before? So that he would be encouraged by her love. And he was. This was precious to Jesus. What worship. Now, David, the Old Testament king of Israel, was one of the greatest worshipers in the Bible. In fact, he is called the man after God's own heart. And I know he committed adultery and he murdered and he did many other things. But nevertheless, God looks at a contrite heart and a broken spirit. And David had that. He knew what it was to worship the Lord. 
And he knew what it was to give sacrificially in worship to the Lord. And there's an occasion, I'll not go into all the details, you find it in 2 Samuel 24, where he's going to purchase a field. And that field is going to be a place where sacrificial offerings would be made. And eventually the temple will be built there as well. And the man who owned the field was going to give it to him for nothing because he's the king. And he wants it for God. And David spoke these these words for time and memorial that illustrate sacrificial offering. He said, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. There's something precious in the sight of God when he receives from our hearts costly, devoted, sacrificial worship. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying you can buy your way to heaven. Salvation is by grace through faith. It's a free gift. You just accept it by simple faith for the taking. But what I am saying is, when we understand and know and love God, there is nothing that delights his heart more than we give him what Hebrews talks about as the sacrifice of praise. Do you know that believers are required to give sacrifices and offerings in this present dispensation? Not lambs or goats but the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving from our hearts. That's what Hebrews 13 and 15 says. Therefore, by him, by Christ, let us continually offer sacrifices of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Now, Mary certainly did not offer to the Lord that which cost her nothing. She offered a very expensive offering. Look at the verse. Verse 4. Verse 3, first of all, a woman, this is Mary of Bethany, came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard, or pure nard, the margin might say. And she broke the flask and poured it on his head. Now, this spikenard was imported from India, and that was no mean feat in these days in which Jesus lived. And we know from this context that a whole jar that she poured over Jesus' feet was worth one year's salary for a common laborer. Because 300 denarii, that's the price Judas and his objectors say could have been accrued through the selling of this ointment, that's a year's salary for the average man. What's your year's salary? She was not inhibited in showing her love to the Lord openly. She did it not just lovingly, but she did it lavishly. It was costly. It was extravagant. And you know what John records in John 12, in his account? He says that the fragrance... Filled the whole house. That's what happens when you worship Christ like this. That's what happens when you give costly, sacrificial devotion to the Son of God. It fills the whole house. But not only was there a positive reaction, there was also a negative one. And can I say to you tonight 
that there always will be a negative reaction from some people when there is open, extravagant, loving, and lavish devotion to Jesus in worship. The act of her devotion brought joy from the heart of Jesus, but equally drew malice from the heart of Judas and the others, whoever they were who were objecting to this expensive sacrifice. And we see in verse 4, Judas and some viewed this as waste. Why was this fragrant oil wasted? They didn't see it as worship, they saw it as a waste. And in verse 5, it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they criticized her sharply. And my margin says, they scolded her sharply. Imagine in the presence of Christ, these guys rose up and scolded her. Can I say something to you? The flesh and carnal people, even carnal believers, cannot appreciate what is done only for the love of Jesus. Let me turn the tables on you. Do you think it would be a waste to spend one year's salary on Jesus? Or, put it another way, do you think it would be a waste to spend one year on Jesus? I wonder, is God calling some of you to spend a year for Jesus somewhere? Take a year out from your studies or from your career? And maybe there's a little voice niggling at the back of your consciousness saying, but it's a bit of a waste, you know. I mean, I could get get to where I need to be all the quicker if I didn't take that year, if I didn't give it to God. But can I say something to you? Jesus wants more than a year. He wants your life. But if you think it's a waste to give him a year, a year's worth of money or a year's worth of time, what's the chance then of you giving your life to him? Great demonstrations of worship are often misunderstood. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I'm not talking about self-centered, ostentatious pretension that we often see sometimes in churches where people just get on in a way that just betrays, look at me. That's not what we're talking about. You might say, well, then how do you tell the difference between someone who is really openly, lovingly, and lavishly worshiping the Lord and someone who is just doing it for self-centered reasons. How can you tell the difference? Well, the answer is you can't. The difference is down here in the heart, and the only one who can tell the difference is God. So it's not for you to judge. It's for God to see and accept that which is true. But one thing I am sure of is that even when you're exercising exuberant, extravagant worship, openly, lovingly, and lavishly towards Jesus, even in a way that to others might seem embarrassing, if it is in spirit and in truth, you lose self-consciousness somewhat. What I mean by that is you couldn't care less what anybody thinks. And David, the great worshiper, is an example of this. And he was misunderstood for it in Second Samuel chapter 6. David danced, we read, before the ark, half naked. And his wife, Michael, looked out of her window and she saw him. 
parading himself before the ark. It says he was leaping and whirling before the ark. And as Michael looked down upon this scene, she despised him, the Bible says, from her heart. And later when she got the opportunity, she mocked him sarcastically for his behavior. And yet what he did, he said he did it unto God. Now can I ask you, are you inhibited in your praise toward the Lord? Sometimes it's to do with our backgrounds and the way we believe we ought to uh, behave ourselves. And, and I, I'm not, believe me, I'm not in favor of chaotic behavior in the presence of God. There is a need at times for silence and sanctity and a hush of holiness in our gatherings. But often we are inhibited in our praise and all it is is fear of others. Fear of people like Judas and these naysayers, their scorn, their sarcastic remarks that they're looking at us and what are they going to think of us? What does it matter? And maybe what you need to do here this evening, some of you who feel this in your heart, but you have a devotion and a love towards the Lord just wanting to bubble up, but you suppress it because of what others will think of you, or maybe even a self-consciousness in yourself. You know what you need to do? You need to break the alabaster box. In other words, you need to break whatever is confining your praise and your worship. You need to shatter it and let it out. The Lord quickly comes to the defense of his extravagant worshipers. He loves them. And in verse 6, Jesus said to these people, Let her alone. I love that. Is that a word for someone here tonight? Leave her alone. Leave him alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. Now, if you mark your Bible, that would be a good two words to ring. For me. It was for me, Judas. It was for me, disciples. Here's something we continually need to ask ourselves. Is what we're doing for Christ truly for him? Is it for him? What are you engaged in in the work of God in church or whatever? I don't know, but is it for him? Now listen, no matter what anyone thinks of us, no matter what anyone says of us, the only thing that matters is, is it for him? Are we pleasing him? And what I tell you, if I'm doing it for him and I'm pleasing him, I don't care who I'm displeasing. I don't care. Sometimes it may annoy me a little bit when, when people are annoyed with me and I don't like going out of my way to offend people, of course, and I like to have friends and not enemies. But at the end of the day, if it is for him, what else does anything matter? You see, the most important thing for God is worship. God desires worshipers. And in verse 7, Jesus makes this plain. He said about this issue of selling it and giving the money to the poor, you have the poor with you always. 
And whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. The most important thing is worship. All else is secondary. It's not that we're meant, not meant to give to the poor. It's not that we're not meant to preach the gospel. It's not that we're meant, not meant to do the things that we do, that Christians do. But we're meant to realize the order of priority. The most important thing is devotion and worship to Jesus. That's the most important thing. Now, have you ever discovered that? Because I know Christians who are running around like the proverbial blue bottle, for want of a better statement, and they're not in touch with God. And they're doing things for God, and they're doing things from a heart of affection and devotion towards Him, and they're sincere, but they're not worshippers. They're not intimates. They're not people who have been in the holiest place of all and know what it is to gaze on the face of Christ in the Spirit. And if you're that person, you've missed the first and elementary lesson that Jesus taught these disciples. Turn back with me to Mark 3, please. And this is important. Verse 14 of chapter 3. Now watch this, please. Verse 13. He went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. So he's calling the twelve apostles. And they came to him. Now watch this verse. Mark it if you you can. Then he appointed the twelve. Why did he appoint them? That they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach. The first thing that he called them to be was with him. Do you understand? and then to go out and preach. The order is we need to spend time with Christ, worshiping Christ, and then move out to others. And the tragedy is if we're not dependent on Him and we're not intimate with Him, we will be no use in going out to others. Judas wasn't interested in the poor, as we said. He wanted what was given to Jesus. The price of the ointment. Now, here we come down to the crux of the matter. Sometimes our problem is we want. We want what should be given to Jesus. We want the time. We want that half hour in the morning or in the evening rather than giving it to God or whatever time. We want the money. We want the selfish things, the delights, the passions, the pleasures, the sins, or the besetting things that maybe not are not sins, but they, they drag us down and keep us from God. And unless we surrender self and allow it to be crucified, we're never going to have victory. Judas wanted what was given to Jesus, and it was betrayed in a bitter, begrudging spirit. And you know, bitter, begrudging people cannot worship Christ. Stingy people, people who are stingy with money, their heart's not right with God. Do you believe that? Now, I know I'm causing some of your husbands a real headache now. But uh, seriously speaking, miserliness is a sign of a bitter and a stunted spirit. It is. And I can prove that to you from the Word of God. 
but extravagance is a sign of a free spirit liberated by the grace of God. Now let me ask you in verse 8. Jesus said she has done what she could. Could that be said of you? Now, please, I'm not saying have you done what you could in the Sunday school. I'm not asking you, have you done what you could uh, setting out the chairs, doing the door-to-door work. I'm not asking you. I'm asking in the realm of worship. That's the context we are in now. Have you done what you could? And even when you come into the church this morning, around the table this evening, as you sing the songs, have you done what you could as you sing them? Or are you just singing them? As we pray, as we offer up thanks and praise to God, are we doing what we could? Are we just passing the time? As we give of our substance to God, are we doing what we could? Are we giving sacrificially until it hurts a little bit? Or are we just ticking the boxes? It was fitting that Jesus should be anointed in this place, Bethany. It was his retreat. It was where he resorted to rest among his friends. Because Jesus felt at home in Bethany. And because he felt at home at Bethany, he abode there. And you see, when he feels at home in your heart, when there's fragrant, sacrificial, extravagant, costly worship, He will abide with you. There's something else that I want to leave you with here. And the Lord taught me this this week, and it's been a blessing to me. It says in verse 9, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. You know what that means? When you bless the heart of Jesus, you will bless the whole world. I sincerely believe this. If you can get intimate with Jesus in the secret place in prayer and devotion and extravagant worship, you can change the world. I believe that. Whether as an intercessor or in whatever capacity God has called you. Because this fragrance didn't just fill the whole house. What Jesus is now telling us is it filled the whole world. It filled the whole of history from this moment right to this very day. Do you want blessings from God? Well, who doesn't? Well, the greatest blessings you can get from God are when you give the greatest blessings to God. And Mary in this room in Bethany started a wave of blessing that has been memorialized. Jesus said, wherever the gospel will be preached, her name and the story would be recounted. And we know that from Matthew and from Mark and from John. It's memorialized in the gospels. But this is really what I'm getting at. Churches today are banging their heads together brainstorming as to how we can most impact the world for Christ on the mission field and in our locality. How can we reach our neighbors and our friends and our work colleagues? And they decide, well, we need more of this and we need more of that and we need this type of a program program and this type of regime. Listen to what I'm saying. God revealed this to me, I believe, from this verse this week. 
a devotional intimacy with Jesus will give you a universally powerful and impacting gospel witness. Let me repeat that. A devotional intimacy with Jesus will give you a universally powerful and impacting gospel witness because that's what he did for Mary of Bethany. And that's what he'll do for you, dear, in your prayer closet. If you give your heart sacrificially to him, he'll change the world through you or some part of the world. What legacy are you going to leave? Judas's legacy, the miserable betrayer. Or one like Mary of Bethany, the extravagant worshiper. Will it be said of you? I hope it's said of me at my funeral, if the Lord doesn't come before, I hope it's said, he did what he could in worship. Let us pray. Now in the quietness, and by the way, one way that you can discern the presence of God in a gathering is quietness. I know I've been encouraging exuberant praise, and there's a place for that. But often what happens when the presence of God falls upon a gathering, when the power of God is evident in the preaching of the word, is that there is an unusual stillness. And I believe that that stillness is here. It's a sign of his presence. It's important, I believe. And you know I don't rush at any point, but it's important now not to rush. And God is here. Just be still for a moment in his presence. And he has been saying something to some of you. Hasn't he? May I remind you that at the beginning you prayed for God to speak to you. Hope you didn't do it in a matter-of-fact way, and now he said something to you, and you're going to try and plug the ears. You asked him to speak to you, and he has. <coughs> Unbeliever, he has spoken to you. You're going to be in danger of committing the mistake Judas did, and you will go to your own place as he did. He was lost forever in despair and regret and torment for what he had done. And you will be also, my friend, if you do not repent and believe in Christ. Will you be saved tonight, young person, older person? Will you tonight say, maybe someone who is under some illusion that they are a Christian, it doesn't matter if you hold a position in this church, who cares if your eternal soul is in jeopardy? Will you say tonight, I will be saved and I will make sure I'm saved? If you're not sure, make sure. But all of us believers have a debt to God. Not our salvation. We could never pay that. But we have a debt of thanks. 
of gratitude and praise that he is worthy of for what he has done in our lives. How are we paying it? Is there an alabaster box that needs to be smashed tonight? We all worship God in our own way according to our own temperament and personality. We can't do it the same way as everybody else, but we need to be free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Are you free in your worship of God? You need to be. He wants you to be. Not just in corporate gatherings like this, but an intimate in the closet. And let me say to you, you have no idea the impact that your worship in the secret place will have openly to the world if you do what Mary did. Now, I'm going to close in prayer, and I'm not going to say don't talk, but just be aware that some people might be dealing with God and aware that some people may be enjoying the sense of God. And don't take that away from them. If you want to talk, certainly talk. And, but just keep in mind, please, that some people might be really dealing with God. Father, we thank you that there's a sense of the fragrance tonight of what that worship meant to Jesus just as he was going to Calvary that there should be one heart that really understood, one heart that really wanted to say, I love you, Lord, for what you're about to do. Lord, we often say of our loved ones down here, why don't we tell them we love them more while we have them with us? But this is on a different scale altogether. And we pray that while we are in our bodies and while we're living to praise you, that we'll do it with all our might, Lord, in our homes as well as, is in church. Let us not parade ourselves in public, but be dead at home. Oh God, if we do not praise you, the stones will cry out. So help us to learn even from the stones. But let us not be stones, Lord. Let us and teach us to be worshippers in spirit and in truth. And we know that if we are true worshippers, we will present our bodies living sacrifices, wholly acceptable unto God, which is our expected worship. We will not be conformed to this world, but we will be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we may be able to do what is that good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. Give grace, Lord, tonight for the needy, for the unsaved, for the backslider, for the struggling Christian, for the person who's in the balance tonight. And let the transaction be enacted tonight. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen.